When we continue our Advent series, this is week two of Advent. We've been looking at different songs in the Gospel of Luke. And so today is Zechariah's song. And we're going to read Luke 1, verses 67 through 79. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Morning. Before I start, can we pray for those that are missing loved ones in that Oakland fire or lost loved ones? Father, we want to lift up our city to you. Lord, many people from the Bay uh, were attending that event, and we want to lift up their families and friends, Lord, that you would provide to them comfort at such a trying time. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your church in a very loving way, in a very caring way at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm actually going to be looking at Zachariah's song a little bit before we actually get into the song just to give us a little bit more background and context, but I wanted to start out with just this idea of tourists. Whenever you go into San Francisco, do you notice the tourists? I mean, they're pretty easy to spot out because whenever you visit, they're the ones that always think California is warm, and then they end up buying the SF fleece that you always get at either Fisherman's Wharf or Chinatown. So if you own one of those, Tourist. You're not supposed to own one of those if you live here, okay? So you can always spot a tourist out in San Francisco, and they probably didn't read up or believe that San Francisco is cold in the summertime, right? They probably were like, oh, it's summertime, it's California, and then you walk around and then you see the trolley car with all these guys with the SF little fleece thing. And so, you know, Mark Twain wrote, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco, right? But many people do read up where they're going to travel, and their upcoming journey, last week I was riding BART and I noticed this guy with this travel book about Italy and the Amalfi Coast and I was just like looking over, I'm like, oh, I just wish I was you, like, and all these things, right? And whenever we spend a good amount of money on a trip, we invest some time into researching the thing about that country or where are we going to stay? What are we going to eat? How are we going to get from place to place? What sites are we going to visit? And how much do things cost? The weather, you know, all those types of things. And we'll invest some time reading books and websites and different things like that. When we do this so that we can get a lay of the land, so that when we get there, we don't have to buy an SF fleece. We do these things to learn about where we're going and to gain a better understanding of what we are investing into. 
So you can't just kind of come into Oakland and just hang out by the lake and then think, I know everything about Oakland. It's so cool. You really, like, well, let me show you something. There's so much more to learn that informs us about a city. It's history, it's climate, it's demographics, the industry that's there, a lot of things. And, and this is something that we need to do in our journey with God. Otherwise, things just kind of seem like they're on the surface level, and then judgments are made on that pretty shallow ground. To make a decision on an entire city based on this small body of water built by humans is pretty shallow. Making judgments on Christianity without exploring it is pretty shallow. So in today's scripture, I know we're in Advent season, we're going to dig a little bit deeper so that this Advent season doesn't seem like any other one where we're just kind of talking about these surfacey things or things that we think people already know about and to hopefully make it more meaningful. It might just come across as a sentimental thing that Christians just celebrate every year and I'm trying to not be that way. That hopefully we can see something a little deeper and we can look deeper into its background, deeper into the context, deeper into the history, the culture. So that when we look at a verse like verse 69 when Zechariah said, God raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, and on the surface, without digging, without knowing any context, without knowing any of the Bible, it just doesn't seem all that relevant. But we'll dig into that a little bit. So today we meet Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, who was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that are very expectant, very hopeful of a glorious, of a victorious conclusion of their earthly existence. And so we look to Luke 24 to give us a glimpse of this expectation because I think it does this for us. And so in Luke 24, this is after the crucifixion, this is after the resurrection, and we find that Cleopas and another follower of Jesus, they are dejected from the death of Jesus, not knowing that he was resurrected, and it was him who was walking with them. And so in Luke 24, here's the expectation in verse 21 of Luke 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And with Jesus' death, this hope that they had of redemption, it was gone. But Jesus responded with this in verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in essence, Jesus was saying, you experienced Lake Merritt, and you're making a judgment about everything Oakland. And life is just simply not like that. That's not how we live. And in order to get to know someone, in order to get to know something, there has to be an approach that sees the bigger picture. And in order to know the Old Testament from Moses to the prophets, it won't be completely understood without Jesus in that picture. So you look at verses 44 through 45 in Luke 24, it says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
If there's any takeaway that you have from this morning, any at all, this one is really important to take with you. That God opens your mind to understand the scriptures. If there's anything to take, you're all very bright people. Well, most of you. And so kidding. I'm really kidding. But there's no amount of rationalization that can come from my mouth that will convince you about the things of God. I'm not that smart. I'm not that eloquent of speech. There's no amount of sparring that we can do verbally to have me convince you of that. And thank God for that, that it's not dependent on me. That would be very sad. But I pray for you that God opens your minds to understand the scriptures. There's so much that has happened before Zechariah ever sang anything about this, that if we don't know this, we, we will miss the depth, we will miss the richness lost in the Advent season and the birth of Jesus, Jesus who is the ultimate redemption for us and to where much of the scripture's news about deliverance and redemption, it all points to him. Now, we won't look at everything that has happened, but let's follow a timeline of history, a history that would be agreed upon by many secular historians as well as religious historians. We start with the Israelites being slaves in Egypt. God used Moses to deliver them, and eventually they entered into the promised land, and along the way, they dishonored, they disobeyed, they disgraced God, and they continued to do so even though God brought them into the promised land. This rebellion, it led them to be overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians exiled them from the promised land. And while they were in foreign lands, they wept and they pleaded to get back to the land. And so God used this Persian king named Cyrus to overthrow Babylon. And Cyrus began to repatriate them back to the homeland, to resettle there, to repair the walls. This is what we find in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have any thoughts about looking into that or digging deeper into that, you can look into that study. And throughout all of these regime changes, the people of God were hoping, they were expecting God's kingdom to come, for a king to come and rule over those Medo-Persians who ruled over them. And the people could see God's hand at work. Hey, you know, Nehemiah is being sent back over there and things are being established and we're starting to be post-exilic. After these Babylonians pulled us out, we're starting to make our way back. But not all of it was fully realized. There were still many prophecies unfulfilled and many of the minor prophets we find in the scriptures were pointing the people to continue living for God as the time had not yet arrived for him to rule. That there will be a sunrise from on high as Luke chapter 1 verse 78 shares with us. But then came the Greeks. The Greeks led by Alexander the Great. They toppled the Persian Empire. Empire after empire ruling over God's people. All of these dominant values and cultures and beliefs and religions. They're casting the shadow over everything that the Israelites held dear. Oppressive empire after oppressive empire ruling over God's people. And so you can imagine some of the people's faith, trust, belief in God waning because they've seen so many generations passing who have held on to these expectations that haven't been met. There were a lot of promises that didn't seem to be met. Every empire that held power over them was really different from who they were. 
They were always a minority group that was always thought to be really strange in what they believed in and how they practiced what they believed. But there was always this remnant who was faithful in the hope of God's kingdom coming with Messiah to deliver them. The scriptures, one of them being in Malachi, mentioned this forerunner who would come before Messiah, but they didn't know when this would happen. And so they're waiting in anticipation. And then what happens next? The Romans come in. And then the Romans overthrew the Greeks, another oppressive empire ruling over them. And so you must imagine what's going on in their head. Messiah? What are you talking about? When? I mean, we've been waiting so long for this. And so some have fallen into disbelief, while others have held on to the promises of Scripture and kept their faith. It's during the Roman Empire's rule that angels deliver this message to shepherds and a teenage girl. And we talked about Mary's song last week. Mary spoke with her cousin Elizabeth. She ventures into the Judean hillside. She hangs out there for three months, and they talk about babies. And they realize this time that's been in all the scriptures, it's come. All those centuries, this is it. Like, You and me, Elizabeth, we're carrying this. This is happening. And so the fulfillment of these prophecies begin. And this is what Zechariah was responding to here. They've been waiting for this moment for generations, for a very long time. Do you sense that anticipation that everything that they've read and studied and heard about is finally coming? It's building up to this. Let's look Back several verses to verse 59 in Luke chapter 1. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Why name their son John? Why not Zechariah Jr.? Why is it John And the community is really, really confused at this name. You look at verse 61 again. None of your relatives is called by this name. It's really puzzling to them as to why the baby wasn't given a family name. And they aren't convinced that Zachariah is totally on board with this decision. So they start making signs at him, right? Like a Z or something. I don't know. And they just can't believe that after all this time, he's been waiting for a child for a long time. Elizabeth has been barren. And it was a miraculous thing that happened that she was with child. And so you would think that after all this time, name him after you. I mean, name him Junior. And so the signs didn't work. And and he's like, no, no, no. Right? And so they hand him this thing. and, And then he writes it down for them. And they're just in wonder. And the first thing that Zachariah does is he blesses God. Zechariah went from unable to speak to speaking blessings, and this was miraculous. So, why John? Well, John's name 
means the Lord is gracious. That's what John means. And God wanted to get this message across very clearly that he's gracious. That he recognizes, yes, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Roman. I'm still here. I'm gracious. And Jesus coming to redeem, to save, it's by his grace. That God leads with grace. We're going to see in Zechariah's song that God is a God of redemption, mercy, and action. But before any of that song was spoken, there's something to be really clear about and something for us to understand, that the Lord is gracious. A reminder that even though they were living in really difficult times under Roman occupation and have had a history of living under oppression, that they have never been forgotten. And perhaps there are people here who are experiencing some very challenging, some very difficult times, and perhaps it's been generation after generation that you've been experiencing these hardships. Remember that the Lord is gracious. He's not forgotten you. and He cares for you. No one would have ever thought that anyone cared for Israel. If you look at their history, for over four centuries, they've been outcasts of society, always on the margins, always stepped on, tossed around, enslaved, and no one would have ever thought of anything of them throughout history. But God was sure to send in John, God is gracious, to usher in Jesus. The Lord is gracious was a message God wanted to get across very clearly before he ushered in Messiah to change the world. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, so John's birth came as this declaration of the coming Messiah, and I'm hoping we get over celebrating Christmas as this sentimental holiday. You know, just kind of get together and eat and hand out presents and things like that. We see Zechariah, and we see as how he saw. We understand things, how he understood things. He saw redemption, hope, grace, faith, joy, deliverance, because he understood all that needed to happen before Messiah came. He knew the people suffered for centuries before this moment, that his people suffered through all those different oppressive regimes, and yet God still was in control through all of it as evidenced by what happened throughout the scriptures. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us. We're redeemed. And unless there's this understanding of how much we have been or are in bondage, we won't fully understand redemption. Zechariah understood it deeply because his people have been in bondage for so long, and at this time they still were. Now for us, the bondage may be experienced differently in that we have not gone through generations of our ancestors being in bondage. Not all of us. Some of us have experienced this. 
Some people do have these very unfair experiences. That's why we have the Black Lives Matter movement happening right now. That they felt these generations of oppression and they're wanting to revolt against these things. And we talked about revolution last week with Mary Song. We do all have experience in being in bondage to sin, as do all of our ancestors. That's something that we do all relate to one another on. We all know how futile life can be, but God gives us this everlasting purpose. And it's not something that just lasts for our lifetime and then it's gone. It kind of carries over that there's this legacy that we're part of in the larger story of God's grace to us. And so here in Zechariah's song, he references David back in the Old Testament. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God spoke through the prophet Nathan saying, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we see that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne. This is Jesus. That Jesus' throne will be sat in for everlasting. But it's not a king in the way that we see a king. We tend to think of politics or economics, military, when we think of our kings. Jesus, as king, is concerned with those things of our world, but it's deeper than just those things. He's concerned with our character, our heart, redemption, relationship, redemption for everlasting. Now you keep in mind that these are some really, really old promises that were made. When Zechariah spoke about this, it's year 04 BC, somewhere in there, right? And the covenant made with Abraham is around 2000 BC. Covenant made with David is about 1000 BC. These are really old promises, promises that God kept. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, removed from Jesus. We have a promise as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is in regards to the second coming of Jesus. The promise to Abraham was over 2,000 years old. It was fulfilled. The promise to David was over 1,000 years old. It was fulfilled. The promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ will also be fulfilled. It just hasn't happened yet. God keeps his promises. And how exciting for Zechariah to live through these promises being fulfilled right before his eyes through his child. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So God made this covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. This covenant, as well as many others, were fulfilled in Jesus, that without Jesus, Jews are still waiting for a Messiah. And how does one explain all the promises, hundreds of them, that were fulfilled by Jesus? Prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. And if you plug Jesus into that equation, so much of the Old Testament is made clear, is answered. And God has showed us mercy through Jesus, and he always had this plan to send Jesus to save his children. We can't understand the mercy of God without Jesus. Jesus is mercy personified. Deliverance from bondage is through him. Christmas is not simply about a baby being born. There are hundreds of thousands of babies born every day. And a baby can't provide us with mercy. Actually, you'll be begging for mercy if you have a baby, right? So, 
It's only God incarnate. Verse 73, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We've been redeemed. We've received mercy. So now what? Do something. Do something. Act on it. Serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. We have a part in spiritual deliverance in that we share the gospel, that we disciple people in the ways of God. We also have a part in the physical, earthly deliverance. How are we addressing the suffering, the injustice of our world right now? What are the tangible things that we are doing to combat those things presently? God cares for all of us in entirety, not just the spiritual part of us, and for us to imitate him, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's John the Baptist. And so here Zechariah talks about his son, the prophet of the Most High, the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, who will give knowledge of salvation to his people. This knowledge is the forgiveness of sins. God desires to forgive sins. Why? Because that's what separates us from him. And he wants communion with you and me. And by his grace, as his divine plan of sending Jesus to us, we have the forgiveness of sins available to us. We have that communion available to us now. In the book, a forgiving God in an unforgiving world. Ron Lee Davis is the author. He writes the story of a Philippine priest. And the priest was a man of God who was loved by a lot of people, but he had this secret sin that he had committed back in his seminary days that was just haunting him. And so this secret sin that he committed many years ago, he just couldn't shake it, and he tried repenting of this sin, but he'd never had peace. He never experienced peace from this, and he didn't sense God's forgiveness about this sin. And so in his parish, there was this woman. This woman claimed to have visions of Jesus speaking to her. She was a very devout follower of God. She loved God really deeply, and so the priest is very skeptical about this woman and her visions and dreams and things like that, and so he wants to test this woman and so he goes to this woman to test her ability to speak with Jesus and so he goes to her and he told her you know the next time you speak with Christ I want you to ask him what sin your priest committed while he was in seminary and so the woman agreed she agreed to do this a few days later the priest asked well did Christ visit you in your dreams and she replied yes he did and did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? And she said, yes. Well, what did he say? He said, I don't remember. <laughs> See, the same thing applies to you and me. 
Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He does not lead with judgment. He leads with grace. That's our God. His plan was to send John the Baptist, the grace child who ushered in Jesus, the Messiah, who takes away the sin of the world. God is gracious. He leads with kindness. His kindness leads to repentance. Let me close with this verse. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. And oftentimes we have this misconception of who you are. And oftentimes we've internalized this to be truth and we portray you to be a God of judgment. We portray you to be such a harsh God. And so, Lord, would you help us to portray you in a more accurate way? And we can see from history, Lord, that if you were indeed such a harsh and judgmental God, that we wouldn't be here. And yet, through your divine plan of sending John, sending Jesus, we can have communion with you. So Lord, during this time, if there's any confusion as to your character, as to your grace, I pray that it would be answered in Jesus' name. Amen.